0: My name is Nathan. I'm so glad you're here. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible, and one of our ushers will hand one to you. We're going to start in Exodus 24, and we'll be kind of all over the place today, but I will i um, will do my best to kind of direct that road trip. Also, if there's um, a basket underneath your seat because you chose an aisle seat uh, versus the window seat, you can, I grab those baskets and and then there's a communication card in there. So this is your first time here with us this morning. Welcome. I'm so glad that you chose to join us. If you'd like to hand off your email address, we will connect with you in that way, or your phone number, if that's better. We send out a weekly email, about a 60-second email, just sort of the highlights of what happens in our community each week. And that and a couple other things are the main... Great, so welcome. I'm so glad you're here. We are we are uh, nearing the end of a series, a new teaching series we started this fall called The Work of the Church, and essentially the question that we're asking in this teaching series is what are we doing and why are we doing the things that we're doing? I imagined, we launched this about a month ago, and I imagined at that time, just by way of sort of re, um Reiteration, I imagine somebody from like the soccer complex next door or the softball complex behind us uh, Noticing a bunch of cars and people walking into a school on a Sunday morning Which is sort of strange and maybe po- poking their head in the door back there and saying hey, what's going on here? And, and I imagine what kind of response we might be able to provide to that question I'm confident that many of you would have really good responses to the question what is going on here, but my hope for this series has been to deepen our understanding of why we gather and deepen our understanding of what we do, of why we do what we do when we gather. And the point is not so that we'll have more information in our heads, but the point or the goal is that we will then experience worship more deeply. That our experience of this, going to church, will expand and will grow and won't be the same as it was last year. It won't be the same as it was five years ago because our appreciation for it will deepen and will grow. We'll enter into it as a result more wholeheartedly. I shared, um, yeah. I shared with you last week that um, I recently res- re- returned from just the part, just part, like 12 days of a historic Christian pilgrimage that goes uh, from France over the Pyrenees and across the northern part of Spain. It's called the Camino de Santiago or the, the Way of St. James. Um, And I'm probably going to refer to this for the next few weeks because I'm just in it still. I I can't. I'm just in it. I'm going to be there in in Spain for a while, I think. Uh, Probably my favorite part of the experience was stopping at several. This will relate. I promise it will relate. Um, My favorite part was stopping at several churches or monasteries along the way. Um, In some cases, I had read about the church before we got there. So I learned just a little bit about the church, like a little bit about its history, a little bit about the people who worshiped there or some of the adversity, this was interesting, some of the adversity that had confronted that church, like plagues, or major world invasions, or or, or world wars, and some of the dynamics that had affected the people who called that space their church home over literally hundreds and hundreds of years. Because I knew a little bit more about the space of these churches and what had happened there, and because I probably knew more than the average pilgrim, which was a gift, about the significance of the symbol used in this space and the significance of the stories being depicted in the art in this space. My, because of that, my experience of this space, my experience of my time spent in this space was was deep, deeper, more significant. I would say it was of a different quality than the experiences of many of the others who were experiencing the very same thing that I was. And and why is that? Because I better understood the answer to the question, what's going on here? That's why, that's the only difference, right? And so because I better understood the answer to the question, what's going on here, it deepened my appreciation for what was going on here. And, And this is what so amazed me, it changed, the quality of my experience. It changed the quality of my experience. And so somebody's having an experience right next to me, and yet my experience with that very same thing is deeper. Here's a couple examples. I was in a chapel. Their art just, just exalting, just declaring truth to me as I sit in this ancient old bench in this little teeny chapel, and on my left, Is This picture it's like it looked like it was carved out of marble life size. You can kind of see that life size figurines Um, And here's a scene right and here it is happening. I happen to know That this is jesus being baptized by john the baptist, right? So you have this big Significant scene in the history of the bible where you've got god the father god the holy spirit god the son and jesus's ministry is beginning now I know that. I don't know how many of the other people who are walking through that space knew that. This is speaking loudly to me. This is the kind of thing that we've seen maybe before. Here's what just threw me. On the other side of the chapel, like 20 feet away, this little, is a third the size of this chapel, this space. This image. I don't know how, how well you can see that, and I don't know how many people would recognize that, but that is a picture of the end the same man, but John the Baptist, the one that's baptizing Jesus by pouring water over him. Here's John the Baptist kneeling down. It's graphic. It's it's violent. I was amazed at how violent the art was. Um, but, but that's because there's so much violence in the Bible. There's he's being beheaded as sort of like a party trick at Herod's uh, at a big banquet that Herod throws. And so on my I'm thinking like okay, here's the prophet. Here is the man who who recognizes Jesus as the, as the Lamb of God comes to take away the sin of the world. The highlight of his life has got to be baptizing Jesus, right? And then it ends like this, you silly, stupid, like somebody wants his head on a platter and he's called, what happened was he called out Harry for marrying his brother's wife. and So they arrest him for it. And this is how it ends. Anyway, my point is this, people are walking in going, Like this is the story, right? This is what I believe. This is what happens to prophets when they declare the truth. This it doesn't end pretty all the time, right? And that the faithfulness of Jesus being exalted as the as the King of Kings is still true and still proclaimed. So I'm sitting there thinking about John's disciples who asked Jesus, "Are you the one? Should I put my trust in you, Jesus?" Because John just got beheaded, and I'm thinking, yes. of like, oh, that's cute, that's cool, I come out of there, I come out of there changed, I come out of there having had this profound experience, do you see what I'm saying? Here's another example, this is in the corner of a 13th century church, do you know what that is? You know what that is, right? It's a baptismal font, right? it's, a bapti- it's a 13th century baptismal font, so you walk in there and you go, oh, that's an interesting bowl, it's like this big, it's huge. Name, and we want her to be Jesus's. We want to give her to Jesus. We, our whole family wants to follow Jesus. And so we come around this font, this little corner of this little world. It's just amazing to me, right? It's all about having a little bit better understanding of what's going on here so that it doesn't become rote, it doesn't become traditional. so fascinating. Some people would just peek around a half-opened 600-year-old door and and kind of go up, down, left, right, raise their eyebrows, and walk out. And that was it. And other people would walk into the same door and just go, and just be brought upward, and be brought, like, the magnitude of the space would just overwhelm them. I visited this huge cathedral in a city called Burgos, and it was just too much to take in. It was just too much to take in. Afternoon there, I stopped taking pictures. My pictures weren't doing justice to what I was seeing. It's just this chapel upon chapel upon chapel. Some of you may have been to big cathedrals. It's overwhelming. The art's insane. It's amazing, and it was of such quality, and the artists were so famous that it became a museum. So people are walking around with headsets, and they're listening to. There's a chapel and it said, for prayer, and it wasn't part of the tour. And so I went into this chapel and it was gorgeous. It was just, boom, just truth being declared. right on walking. One of them walks in and I just happened to see her face when it happened. She walks in, she closes her eyes, she smells the So the variety of experiences. This is interesting to me. The same people, right? All of us experiencing the same thing for the next 45 minutes here this morning. And yet our experiences of this same thing are going to be across the whole gamut. They're just going to be completely varied this morning. One of the dynamics affecting what kind of experience you have this morning is the level to which you're able to engage. The depth to which you're able to participate. Fullness of what we're doing. So, the simple answer to the question what's going on here is this is a worship gathering. That's what's going on here. We've gathered to worship. This is a church community. Many of us have nothing in common except we, we think we want Jesus in our life. And so we've come together and we've decided we'll meet at this time in this place, and we'll meet for the purpose of worship. And the hope and the purpose of this teaching series is that each one of us will ultimately grow in our understanding and then therefore our appreciation of what we're doing so follow here. Adamaeus. it's a historical worship pattern. It's rooted in Exodus 24. I talked about this about a month ago. Um, There is the first record of a public meeting between God and people is recorded in Exodus 24. There are five elements or components to that meeting. Here they are, really quickly, because I taught about this last month. Uh, God calls the meeting. Number one, God calls the meeting. Number two, the people participate. They are not observers. They are not spectators in some 17,000-seat soccer stadium. They are participants, right, in the gathering. Number three, the the word of God is the point of the gathering. The word of God is proclaimed. In fact, that's why God calls the meeting, so that he can proclaim his word. Fourth structural piece of a biblical worship gathering is that then the word is received. It's not just evaluated. It's not just listened to as sort of like, it's it received. How do we know it's received in Exodus 24? Because in verse 3 and in verse 7, twice, the people say, we will do everything you've said. That's what they say. And so that is the difference between hearing the word and receiving the word. As you enter into this place, and this is risky, and it takes faith. And it takes a lot of trust, and I understand that to a certain degree. But you enter into a place of worship with the intent to hear the word and then to do it. That's pretty incredible because you don't know what I'm about to say, right? And and yet this is the essence of worship is that we come not to hear what I have to say. Hopefully I'm faithful to what God says and that you're hearing what God has to say and your intent is then to therefore go do it because God said it. And then finally, the fifth part of a, a biblical worship gathering is that it ends with some sort of a dramatic, ratifying event, right? Some climax, some sort of act that seals and renews the relationship what I want to talk about this morning. There are two primary images in scripture of these dramatic ratifying events. In other words, there are two places in the Bible where over and over and over again, relationship between people and God gets renewed. Two places, big picture where this happens. The first is at altars. It's at the altar, this stack of stones and a stack of dirt where blood sacrifice is made. The Hebrew word translated altar is this word misbeach, and it just simply means a place of slaughter. It's pretty graphic, a place where sacrifice happens. In that first public meeting, that first public worship gathering in Exodus 24, young men slaughter bulls. They sprinkle a bunch of blood on the altar. They sprinkle a bunch of blood on the people. And then Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant, The symbol, the sign, the evidence of the promise that God has made with all of you. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's what follows there. right? The altar centered the place of worship. The altar was the anchor of the place of worship. Hundreds and hun- maybe even a thousand or more years earlier, Noah survives the flood. Genesis 6 gets out of the boat after however many days that was. And then he makes an altar. It's the first altar in the Bible builds an altar, and he sacrifices these animals. armor for the animals. They made it to the flood just to get sacrificed again. Um, and, and he gives this sacrifice of worship to God, and this, this act of gratitude for God. Later, um, in the story of Abraham, Abraham's always building altars. He's always building altars. The most memorable, of course, is when he's tested by God and challenged to sacrifice his own son on an altar, a test. Then redirects him, provides a lamb, and uh, the sacrifice of the lamb is made instead. All these examples of altars of stone, altars of earth, where animals were sacrificed during the time when God's people are walking around like nomads. There's even a there's even a um, a mobile altar that, t- that is built and carried around. There's all kinds of great stories about people who touch this that shouldn't. Um, when the people of God are worshiping in a tabernacle under Moses' leadership, so a basically a tent church they pick up and move so everything's mobile kind of like us right and trailers and so here's the mobile altar and then finally what's really interesting is that when king solomon later 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 still in the old testament but that was a rapid right through the old testament when king solomon builds the first permanent temple he includes an altar there and it's massive it's 45 foot square several stories tall there's a ramp that goes up to it it's covered with bronze and here's what you need to know this is where people encounter God this is where sacrifices to God are made this is where forgiveness of sins happens this is the center of worship and it was first temple period second temple period all the way up into the time of Jesus this is still happening in the time of Jesus this is where if you've sinned, you sin you got to take care of business here if you want a renewed relationship with God you got to go to the altar because that's where restoration happens so in the Bible the first symbol of renewed with God. The first place where restoration happens is the altar. The second symbol of renewed relationship with God, the second place where restoration of relationship happens in the Bible, is at the table. It's at the table. You know about tables. A table is a place where a meal is shared, but it's much more than just about the meal, right? A table can be a place of rest and renewal, and a table can be a place of the restoration for relationship. I'm trying to restore a relationship with them, with somebody, um, one of the first things I'm going to do is ask them to sit down at a table with me. Okay, let me just give you three quick examples of table in the Bible. Okay, here's the first one. Whoops. Here's the first one, Genesis 18, fascinating, mysterious scene in Genesis 18, three men visit Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, but at this time, he's 100 years old, has no kids. So there's a problem. Three men show up to Abraham. Somehow he knows it's God. It's really mysterious. The author of the story, or the narrator of the story, probably Moses, refers to them, the three men, as Yahweh, the personal name of God. Goes back and forth between personal pronouns, singular and plural pronouns. It's they, it's him, it's they, it's him. It's really an interesting scene. But it's an early picture of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how it's been embraced historically. Anyway, in this mysterious story, the point of communion between God and Abraham happens at a shared meal that Abraham sets at a table. Early, we're talking early Genesis 18. Where do we meet God? We meet him at a table. That's the second image. There's another example of table. In David's prayer known as Psalm 23, David is praising God for being with him in his pain, right? Even as I walk through the, va- the shadow of the valley of death, the valley of the shadow of death, you will be with me depicts this sweet communion that he is experiencing with God even in his suffering even in his suffering and then David says this you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies that's what he says you anoint my head with oil oil, and my cup overflows so the truth of God's presence and the truth of God's relationship between people and God is just a whole set of stories in the New Testament where Jesus eats with people he's not supposed to be eating with, notorious sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and some of his best friends. Jesus is constantly welcoming people into fellowship that happens at the table. And the table is one of the primary places where Jesus' teachings about love and acceptance and restoration of brokenness In other words, Jesus comes and teaches God loves you. And then he demonstrates that truth by inviting you to have a meal with him and to sit down with him at a table. So if you were to take your Bible and just flip through it, just fan through it, like, you know, just open the whole thing, just open like that. There are two images of God being restored to people and people being restored to God that would rise to the surface like one of those little picture books where the picture kind of emerges and those two images are of the altar which is a place of sacrifice and blood and death and forgiveness and the image of table which is a place of welcome and acceptance and love and nourishment and rest and union and then at the end of the gospel the last Disciples, something profound happens. Do you know what it is? The altar becomes a table. The altar literally becomes a table. Jesus has gathered his disciples together for a meal. And at this meal, he presents not a lamb, but himself as the sacrifice for their sins. And then with one action and with one sentence, Jesus combines altar and table. And this is how it happens. Jesus takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to his disciples and says, take, eat. That's table language, right? Then he says, this is my bread. And then Jesus takes Moses' words from Exodus 24, that very first worship gathering, and that first public gathering, and he changes them in a very specific way, and he hands out the cup. It's the third cup of the Passover, the cup of deliverance, and he hands it to his disciples, and he says, this is, so Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant, right? Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for forgiveness. So it's meal language. It's table language. Piled on top of sacrifice language and altar language. And so the two most powerful biblical images of restoration are combined and fulfilled and perfected in one in Christ. The altar becomes the table. I think that's fascinating. and I think it's, it's rich with image that can just carry us. In one sense, um, the ratifying event in worship kind of shifts. From sacrifice to meal. Think about how that would feel if that's what happened in your life. In other words, if you needed to be restored to God, if forever and ever, amen, the way that you were restored to God was through a sacrifice, and then somebody shows up and says, guess what? Now it's just a meal. Now you're welcome to eat a meal. Now it's not quite that simple because the fuller picture is this, that sacrifice is still in play. Sacrifice is what Jesus says, this is about to happen to me tomorrow on the cross. And sacrifice is what we remember every week. So sacrifice is still there, but the focus has moved from you need to give something up and and let something die. That's still in the background, but the focus now is meal. Right? You're welcome at a table where you're going to be nourished to live as you were intended to. So the sacrifice that You know, And I'm walking away. I shouldn't have done that. I sinned again. I had to go, how do you leave a meal? It's a totally different experience, right? You leave a good meal, and it's a totally different experience. So think about this. Now the sacrifice accomplishes welcome and acceptance and nourishment and renewal and rest and peace. So the sacrifice begins to sound like a really good meal. The place of is True union with God, restoration relationship, and friends. All you got to do, all you got to do, to see how core this idea is to historic Christianity, is walk into basically any church built anywhere in the world before the year 1800, and you will see prominently a, a piece of furniture placed right up in the front. And do you know what that place, that piece of furniture, is called? It is called the altar table. That's what that is. It is the central image of truth. You can be illiterate, right? You can never have read the Bible. And it's going to take a little bit of explaining, I guess, in that case. But you could, in other words, you could walk into this place and go, there is something about what happened there on that altar slash table thing that is the core truth that the community that worships in this space embraces and celebrates every time they come together. All you got to do is walk in and see that. That this is where we gather. This is where, as, our, as a community, we worship God. It is the most, this is the most important thing that we do when we come together for worship. We understand, when we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, just a little bit better, it becomes more and more powerful. And we appreciate more and more fully. And it changes us more and more deeply. And it's not just, gosh, we do this every week. And it's not just cold ritual. And it's not just repetition. It doesn't have to be that. It can be this ongoing, ever-increasing, always growing sense of appreciation, deepening experience that changes us more deeply. About 10 years ago, uh, when Emmaus was just a small group meeting on Thursday nights, uh, I was, we were having discussions about the ways in which short, looked at all of the biblical texts on communion, and then I looked at the early church leaders' statements on communion, some fascinating, very interesting stories about how important communion was to them, how dramatic they believed this experience could be. Then looked at the Nazarene church's position on communion, and then finally looked at um, some cultural realities affecting our experience. Historically, the church has seen, and what we're trying to embrace as a a church here in Lincoln, California, in the 21st century. You can text ECC, like a man's church community space communion, to this number, 51400. That number will always be our number, this instant response thing that we just set up. And you will receive right away a link on your phone to this paper, which I hope you'll consider reading. All All right. Just checking in with one another, offering peace to one another, hopefully having been reminded that we've been offered peace from God. And then we're going to come back together. And we're going to come back together to celebrate communion. And that verb is really intentionally chosen. That verb as is, is a historic, a historically embraced verb regarding our experience with communion. We don't do communion. We don't, I don't know, endure communion. We celebrate communion. That's what you're invited. saying. This is what communion declares to all of us. Two things. One, the ultimate sacrifice was made for you and for your salvation. Right? Jesus died for you. Please don't forget that. Please don't allow that that Sunday School truth that some of you have heard for 50, 60 years to get tired and empty. Jesus died for you. If there's something that feels like it's separating you from the fullness of the love of God this morning, you just need to surrender that because it has been covered ultimate sacrifice has been made on an altar called the cross in this case and jesus has died for you and secondly so that that's not the point the point is this so that you can be restored to full relationship with god that you could be at peace with god what does that look like it looks like being invited to sit and have a meal with god it looks like being invited to sit at the table Participate in and celebrate the fullness of that. And I hope that forever that could be just a powerful, life giving experience for us as a community. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the fullness of the gospel. May we experience it more and more all of the time. May our appreciation of it deepen all of the time. Uh, May we not grow um, apathetic or lazy in our pursuit of you. For you have